0: Picking up with me in Hebrews 1, we, we read verses 1 through 4 last week, but starting with verse 5, actually let me just read from verse 1 anyway, I'm going to read it again from verse 1 just to kind of pull in the whole context as it, as it kind of flows into verse 5. So starting with verse 1 anyway, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the, pro- to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he, sat, uh, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as uh, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom." You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. Imagine the whole universe, God's going to fold it up like a cloth. You are the same and your years will not fail, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation? Father, we ask again for the anointing of your word and the glorification of your son by the work of your spirit. In your name we pray, amen. Now, as we looked at last week, this epistle opens with God. We just read... Verse 1, anyway, I just went ahead and felt led to read those first four verses, uh, which, as we talked about, means "Theos" in the Greek. means the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as one, as God himself. And the opening four verses express the whole, it was looked at last week, go back and catch last week if you didn't, but those first four verses, they express the whole of God's plan to do what? To send forth Jesus... To fulfill all the prophets foretold, all the scriptures foretold, and that Jesus accomplished in his finishing work of redemption. Jesus did a finished work, didn't he? But I want to take a few minutes to outline some of the background of this epistle, because I mentioned uh, we do that this week, we didn't do that last week, and give some perspective on its origination, the audience, and the intent behind this epistle. Or letter, if you ever hear that word. There's no title given to this book. As a matter of fact, most books don't really, the Bible, they're not titled in a certain way. Um, but by the second century, this book of Hebrews was widely referred to within the church as this title the epistle or the letter to the Hebrews. By the second century, that's the way everybody was describing it. Nowhere in the letter is there an actual greeting where the recipients are identified as Hebrews or Jewish. Nowhere are uh, are the recipients identified as Gentile either, for that matter. But the letter is filled with Old Testament or Old Covenant or Law and Prophets references. Saints from the Old Testament. History related to Israel and the Jews. And then we have the ritual practices, uh, primarily found in Leviticus, are also mentioned frequently in the book of Hebrews. So you have these law and covenants all found throughout the book. The letter never addresses any pagan or Gentile practices, but it clearly addresses many of the things that were done under the law. Do you see what I'm saying? That it never mentions pagan practices, but it mentions. The Jewish rituals and customs given to Moses. So, the focus audience was clearly the Jewish people, at least the focus audience, not the only audience. You and I aren't Jewish, we're part of the audience here. But the, the target, the bullseye, was clearly the Jewish people, although these scriptural principles apply to anyone. And, matter of fact, if you're not Jewish, you still need to understand what God presented to Israel to understand why Jesus came to the line of David and so many other things as well. Additionally, the letter theologically addresses three distinct groups of Jewish people. Three distinct are addressed in the letter. The primary group being Jewish or Hebrew believers in Jesus. Jewish or Hebrew believers in Jesus. But... Not just that, these were Jewish believers that were being rejected and even persecuted by other Jews. Not a fun thing, right? I believe in Jesus. Jewish neighbor says, you're crazy. You're not allowed in the synagogue anymore. So that's the first group, believers in Jesus that were Jewish but rejected by their fellow Jewish brethren. The second group that's addressed in Hebrews are Jewish non-believers that had come to accept the basic tenets of the gospel but yet still had not put their faith and trust in Jesus. This is many in the American church right here. They believe everything. They have, you know, Facebook messages about praying for you and all this stuff, but they've never really put their faith in Jesus at all. They believe it's all true, but it's just head knowledge. And then lastly there was this third group that they were Jewish non-believers that were still not convinced the gospel was even true. In spite of their exposure to the truth and much of chapter 9, for example, addresses this group and we get quite a ways away from there, but just to give you an example. Now, we don't know for certain who the author of Hebrews actually is. People have proposed who it could be and There's no way of knowing. I I love, like we looked at last week, the beginning says God. That's our author. But at least as a human author, unlike the other epistles, it doesn't start with a greeting from the author, but rather uh, theos, as we saw last week. Many believe this epistle was written by Paul. I lean towards it being written by Paul because of Paul's extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. He really understood. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He understood all the law and covenants. But we don't know if for sure. And uh, some also believe, and myself, Timothy is mentioned in chapter 13. And Paul, of course, Timothy was his understudy. Timothy, by the way, by the way, Paul had to write to Timothy as a pastor and tell him stop being afraid. Did you know that? <laughs> right. That was that was a letter from Paul. To Timothy, but he mentions Timothy being released from prison in the thirteenth chapter. And by the way, um, it's just another one of the dangers that our brothers and sisters around the world encounter right now. We don't have to deal with that, do we? But we have brothers and sisters, both pastors and people in the church, that are in prison for their faith. That happened to Timothy. He was released from prison. Uh, many scholars believe, because of that date given, that the uh, and the fact that the uh, all the Hebrews' mentions of the temple are written in the present tense. The temple wasn't destroyed till A.D. 70. We know when Timothy was released from prison, so many scholars believe this letter was written somewhere between A.D. 67 and A.D. 69, before the temple was destroyed, but somewhere after Timothy is released from prison. Does that make sense? So we can kind of actually nail down a, a time frame. Ultimately, the book of Hebrews reveals that Jesus is the high priest of our faith. Amen. Given the typology of the Old Testament that is found throughout the book, Jesus is the high priest of our faith, but not just that. He's the sacrificial lamb of our atonement. He's the mediator between God and man. He's the better covenant. He's the new covenant. And that faith in him, not rituals, not Old Testament Ceremony is actually our salvation. and it's not just our salvation, it's our anchor in a fallen and deceptive world. Amen It's not just our salvation from hell to heaven, but it's our anchor right now. And as I just expressed to you in my last you know 12 years, I've needed an anchor. How about you? Amen. Much more than just uh, you know uh, just some platitudes of Power of positive thinking. Now, you need the power of God in your life. We're warned of trusting in any other, in this book, we're warned in the book of Hebrews of trusting in any other thing that would cause us to drift away. We're going to get into that with chapter 2. We're encouraged to keep the faith and thereby grow in faith. You want to grow in faith? Keep the faith. As you keep the faith, God will remind you of things in the faith, and you'll thereby grow by faith. If you're taking notes this morning, you see the title, The Supremacy of the Son. F.B. Meyer said this. He said, Jesus Christ came into the world to glorify the Father, and the Holy Ghost came into the world to glorify the Son. And this book does both. It glorifies the Father. It glorifies the Son. Turn your attention back to verse 5. For to the which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And when again he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, all the angels of God worship him. So we see this reference of you're my son, I've begotten you. This is God the Father speaking. Now, again, I do not understand one one trillionth of how the trinity works how about you it is so beyond our comprehension I can accept it I can say Lord this is what you said my pea brain can't wrap anything around this Jesus has always been but yet God the father begotten him yes he begotten through uh, the virgin Mary in the virgin birth that was coming from outside of time into time and yet Jesus is in both places. He's all God. He's all man. Right, right, right. He's always been with the Father. He's separated the cross from the Father. All of these things, it, they're, they're really beyond our comprehension. We do our best to kind of paint a picture of it, as, but the Scriptures say this is true. And I believe every word of it. How about you? I have no problem. As a matter of fact, if God was my size, then I would have a problem. But he's not. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are His ways our ways. He's far beyond us. But here's what we know. We know that Jesus had a relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit that is more oneness and beautiful than we can comprehend. He had a relationship with His Father. The angels are mentioned here. To which of the angels did He ever say? Now, again... The Holy Spirit's prompting, whether it's Paul or maybe Apollos or whoever wrote this epistle, I want you to frame it in this way. To which of the angels did I ever say this? Now, the angels are mighty. The angels are magnificent. You've had angels support you and you didn't even know it. You've had angels stop cars from probably running into you and you didn't even know it. we get to heaven, God will show us how many times angels were there to protect us or strengthen us Uh, angels have been given power we can hardly imagine. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrians and could have easily killed 185 million or 1.5 billion. Wouldn't have mattered. One angel can take out everybody. The the power difference between us is exponential. Revelation 19.7 describes a mighty angel standing in the sun. Whether he's literally standing in the sun or outshining the sun, or standing in the sky, uh, we can't do any of these, by the way, are or still visible in spite of the brightness of the sun, all of it's a picture of power that's beyond our comprehension. Angels are mighty. Angels are powerful. Angels are not bound by our constraint. They zip back and forth from heaven to earth in a blink of an eye. Angels perform many great acts of power, and service on behalf of who? On behalf of God. They do everything God tells them to never disobey. The only disobedience you ever see in Scripture is human beings. Animals don't disobey. Whale, squall Jonah, Jonah, no problem. Donkey, speak. Ravens, go feed Elijah. Everything you see in the Bible, birds, animals, they all do what God says. Angels, not fallen angels, they become the demonic horde. But the angels that stay true, everything God tells them to do, they do. They're mighty. They're powerful. Some are there at the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. They're there night and day. But like us, and by the way, um, remember an angel was even sent into the garden of Gethsemane to strengthen Jesus just before he went to the cross. An angel was sent. There's even some relationship there. But like us, angels are created beings. We all understand this, right? Angels have a beginning. They're not, they've not always been like God. God is eternal with no beginning and no end. He has no beginning. But angels were created. Uh, they have nothing that wasn't given to them by God. That's why Satan was so foolish. He was created by God and thought he could be as powerful as God. It's not, it's not close. It's not like Satan and God are like a really good match. Right, right. No, anytime God says the word, Satan's done reasons that that God has to fulfill his plan. He's allowed him to stay you know, kind of roaming the world uh, until the very end of judgment would come but angels are created any power they have comes from God but Jesus it says is something different remember back in the verses 1 through 4 it says he's the heir he's the heir of all things from eternity past. He's always been one with the father. Never not been one with his father he was even talking to the father at the cross wasn't he? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The uniqueness of God's relationship with the Son is something we can observe. It's something we can appreciate. It's something we can believe, even though we can't even come close to fully understanding it. Amen? Right, right. But would you agree with me there's a uniqueness to the relationship of Jesus and the Father? Yes. That would be the most ridiculous understatement you could make, right? Uniqueness hardly describes it. But it's prominent in the plan of God. It's prominent throughout the Scriptures, isn't it? The relationship of God the Father and His Son. Isaiah 9, 6. We we usually use this verse around Christmas season, but it's good for all times of year. Proclaims, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. This is Him passing from outside of time, into time. A son was given to the world, and ultimately a son was given over to the cross. That's the whole reason Jesus came. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's the relationship again. He's constantly re- reminding us that me and the son are one. Me and the son. Jesus was constantly saying, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one. John 17, 25, Jesus was praying. This is just shortly before the cross. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. He's again expressing, Lord, one of the ways that they're going to see and desire to become part of the family of God is when they see my relationship with you. On two recorded occasions, once at the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, the other at the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Two occasions. It's impossible to separate redemption from relationship. Did you know when you are redeemed, you enter into a relationship with the Lord? Amen? That's why we say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what we say. That's what we say about conversion. That's what we say about salvation. Now, we're not making that up. That's the theological truth of the Scriptures, that Your redemption gives gives rise to a relationship. Well, Jesus always was in relationship. He gave rise to redemption. He was always in relationship. But he gives a relationship, but it comes through redemption. So you can't separate. They're connected in God the Father and God the Son. The redemption comes or flows from their relationship. In other words, the redemptive plan of God springs from the relationship that's within the Godhead. Redemption springs from that relationship. that's God the Father and God the Son. Specifically, the relationship that God the Father has with His Son, Jesus, as is expressed in John 3:16, when He extends adoption through grace. Amen? Amen. He extends an adoption relationship where adopted or grafted in through grace. See, how we're doing on time here. We're... All right. A couple quick things, and we'll wrap up. If you're taking notes, by the way... His relationship. Next point, if you take a note. His righteousness. We observe and come to appreciate his relationship, but we also want to appreciate the righteousness of Jesus. He goes on to say, look, at, look back in your Bibles. Uh, verse 8, but to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness, the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, you have hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, more than your companions. In addition to the uniqueness and exclusivity of Jesus' relationship with the Father is the exclusivity and uniqueness of his righteousness. And again, another understatement. Exclusive, unique, Jesus' righteousness, there's no comparison. No one else, matter of fact, no one else has righteousness. Everybody else is lawlessness by birth. The scriptures tell us in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not one. We have a lot of people, prideful people today that think their works are good enough for God. They're not. Not on their best day. The Bible says even our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. No one's righteous except when it says no, not one, it's talking about those that are born of a mom and a dad. But there's one man that had a different kind of birth. He wasn't born of a mom and a dad. He was born of the Spirit through a virgin. And the only one, this virgin birth of Jesus, conceived by the Spirit, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in him. Our righteousness only comes through Christ. Only comes through Christ. But he made him who knew no sin to become sin. Now, Jesus became sin how? On the cross, he took on every sin that would ever be committed. Ever. We weren't even born, and our sins were there too already. And his righteousness is our only hope, but it displays his sole right to the throne. Notice what it said. Your throne, O God. Look at verse 9 for just a second again. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Jesus not only is righteous, the only righteous, the personification of righteousness, which is purity of God, but he loves righteousness. He not only is righteousness, but he loves righteousness and he hates lawlessness. That's why someday he's going to throw Satan into the lake of fire and throw away the key. He hates lawlessness. Now let's go back to 2 Corinthians 5.21 again, which I just mentioned. We become instruments of his righteousness. If he loves righteousness, this is where your transformation, if you've really been converted, if you've come into a relationship with Jesus, you now have a desire for righteousness that you never had before. The unsaved me would never have shared what I just shared before I taught. Ever. I'd rather die then share a weakness before I get. My wife can tell you she's like to this day Why did I marry you? You're such a prideful dude. I, I don't understand it. Like, like and I, I look back, I'm like, you should have divorced me a ton of times. You know that kind of thing. Um, but when you get saved, you start to have the heart of God because God implants Himself in you, and all of a sudden, if you were a violent person, you become a gentle person. If you're a person that lied about everything, you're like, I can't do that anymore. If you're a lustful person, you say, This is not. I can't do this anymore. If you cursed all the time, you're like, I, I got a change. This can't come out of my mouth anymore. If he loves righteousness, we'll now love righteousness. We'll hate sin. Boy, some sins just tick me off. How about you? When you watch the news, you want to reach to the TV and execute judgment yourself. And yet we don't hate sinners. We're not to hate sinners. But, but I hate sex trafficking. I hate abuse. I hate murder, I hate rape, I hate families being destroyed. I hate all of that stuff. I hate lust and, you know, people bribing to get their kids in college and all that kind of stuff that we see on TV. But I don't hate sinners. You need to pray for all those people you see on the news. God still loves them and died for them, right? So we don't want to hate sinners, but that doesn't say it doesn't say that Jesus hates people. He hates lawlessness. We'll hate sin if his righteous nature is born into us. But notice the gift of God that comes through righteousness. It goes on to say, Therefore your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The Father loves the righteousness of the Son. Jesus then endured the brutality of the cross, was a man acquainted with sorrow, but after he completed the mission, he ascended to his throne, didn't he? He had to go through the worst of the worst. You think you've had rough times in life? Jesus went through the worst of the worst. Then he ascended to his throne. He's anointed with gladness, yes, yes. which will ah. never be taken away. Jesus will never be again a man acquainted with sorrow. Now, he understands, but he's not walking, the, he's not walking with a cross on him any, anymore. That's so why I'm not a big fan of the crucifix. You know, it's, I'm not, I understand why people have it, but Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. He's risen. Yes. He's not experiencing that. He did it once and all for sin. Uh, but he's anointed with gladness, which is inexpressible joy, which is gladness forever and ever. You have, therefore, your God, that's his Father again. God the Father relationship. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, more than anyone. We're his companions, by the way. And here's the transferable blessing that's available to us and ties 2 Corinthians 5.21 with Hebrews 1.10. And the Lord said, um, or or back in in verse, um, I'm sorry, verse 9, not 10, uh, Hebrews 1.9, as well as uh, John 15.11 where Jesus says, I have come that your joy would be full. I've come that your joy would be full. Uh, We cannot and will not experience the true joy and gladness of God apart from righteousness. Did you catch that? We cannot and will not experience the true joy of God apart from righteousness. In other words, God has to change us first, then the oil of gladness can be poured out in our life. In Proverbs 10:6, you can write this verse down. It says, "Blessings are on the head of the righteous." Blessings are on the head of the righteous. The presence of Christ produces the righteousness of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ produces the blessing of God, thereby favor, gladness, joy. All that comes first through surrendering to Jesus. His righteousness comes in. Then, and only then, can we be anointed with the oil of gladness. Because happiness is a substitute for gladness that comes from God. I mean, you can can kind of have fun moments, but they are very short-lived, aren't they? Yes. Sin is pleasurable for a season. This, isn't what, this is gladness that comes from God. It's depth. It's the inner man joy that only God can give. Uh, we cannot whine our way to gladness. You'll never be able to whine your way to gladness. We'll never be able to sulk our way into gladness. We'll never be able to complain our way into gladness. We'll never be able to buy our way at the mall into gladness. We'll never be able to entertain and binge watch ourself into gladness. We'll never be able to pleasure our way into gladness. We'll never never be able to numb ourselves into gladness. We have to be anointed with gladness. Did you see it? God anointed him with gladness. It has to come from the hand of God. You're fooling yourself if you're trying to find gladness somewhere else and, and you can't find it outside of righteousness. God wants us to be more righteous than we currently are, not by being better people, but by abiding in Jesus. Do you see that? When you abide in Jesus, you don't say, I'm going, like Chuck, Pastor Chuck, you say, I'm going to pop an apple out of my branch. Trees don't talk like that. They don't talk, but yeah, you know, they don't do any of that stuff. They abide and fruit comes. We abide in the righteousness of God and gladness comes surrender to the will of God which is the love which uh, is to love the righteousness of God then the father in due time will anoint us with the oil of gladness i'm praying this church that this year will be the year of the lord's favor in our lives i believe god wants to do some gladness anointing in your life i believe he wants to pour out some joy in your life i believe the same heart of the prayer that's found in Isaiah 61, uh, which, is, which is where this text is from, is where God wants our hearts to align, to know that, Lord, we want to walk in your righteousness and then experience your joy. I'm going to close this last part. Give me five minutes and we're done. Last part, if you're taking notes, his reign. Last few verses. Look at verse 10 through uh, 14. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, you remain. They will grow like a garment, a cloak we talked about. He's just going to fold up the entire universe. But to which of the angels he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? We see the throne of God. We see him making his enemies his footstool. We see him folding up the universe. Are then all minister spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation. The relationship with the Father, the relationship of Christ is everlasting. We understand that. They've been perpetual. God the Father, they're perpetual with no beginning. They were together before the material world. The throne of God existed before the material world was ever seen or understood. But the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as well as the righteousness of Jesus, will be on display... Listen to what I said. It already existed, but it was not on display. In the future, it will be on display for all eternity. Amen? Amen. Millions upon millions will look at the glory of God. Moses could only see a little, a little bit of the hind parts, right, of the glory of God. I've never stepped in and seen the glory of God. In my current state, I would fall down dead. So would you. God has to bring us into our new world. Bodies and new everything to be able to understand and even appreciate it. But in the future, it's all going to be on display for all eternity. And he will forever and ever and ever rule and reign. His enemies will be worse than the footstool. They'll be put out into outer darkness. They're already at the footstool now. That's the current state. It said that Jesus, when he ascended in heaven, he made the earth his footstool. Right now, the earth is his footstool. Worse is coming when he actually takes heaven and earth, when he actually takes death and hell and throws it all in the lake of fire. The footstool is kind of like kicked out, if you will. Right now, the earth already is Jesus' footstool. He's already in control of people who are mocking him and using his name as a swear word. Already, he's already said every every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He already rules and reigns, but he's not displayed it yet. The Bible says when he returns, every eye will see him. And they'll even look upon him who they pierced, right? So the display portion has yet to come, but the rule and reign has already begun, amen? Amen. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's already happening. He's already sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's already ruling and reigning. But the display of it all, his reign, we're not observing it just yet. But we will soon. Jesus very soon will enter into his reign and, you know, the new Jerusalem will come down to Jerusalem and he'll rule and reign for a thousand years and then for all eternity. He already laid the foundations. He's already seated at the right hand of the Father, but he'll soon be folding up the universe. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that reign? By the way, the reference from um, Psalm 110 is recurring all throughout the book of Hebrews. You can go read the Psalm 110, it's a short passage. It recurs throughout Hebrews But I'll close with this verse from 2 Timothy 2.11. The reign of Christ, we get to enter into it. Isn't that great to know? This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him or reign with him. Isn't that great to know? If we died with him, we'll live with him, we'll reign with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again. We can never say thank you enough for sending your son. The relationship that you had and Jesus submitting to the will of the Father to die for our sins. But, Lord, we thank you for the power that was exhibited in laying down his life, but also raising it back up. The humiliation that, Jesus, you went through on our behalf to suffer so great. And we just praise your name. We thank you coming. We thank you for living. We thank you for preaching. We thank you for teaching. We thank you for dying, but we thank you for rising. And Lord, we look forward to seeing the display of your rule and reign. when we'll bow at your feet and finally catch a glimpse of your glory. And so we just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I thank you for the privilege I have to preach for you and to represent you. Lord, I pray that I would continue to grow in this aspect, but also my brothers and sisters here, they would grow as witnesses for you as well.